So I, uh, I want to just take a moment. I've got several things that I'd like to accomplish in our final session. Uh, one, I want to review a little bit uh, what some of the key things that we've talked about so far. Then I want to walk you through a simple presentation of the gospel using a diagram, and I've passed out a template, uh, and we'll talk more about that in a moment. If you did not get one of these, they're at the back there on the music stand. Um, and then uh, the last thing I want to do is I want to take just a moment, I want to do this first, and just mention uh, a couple of things about each of the three books that seem to have the most content that really touches on the things we've talked about this weekend. Uh, first of all, we called this conference The Gospel Unplugged, so it should come as no surprise that this little booklet, The Gospel Unplugged, uh, really uh, is a good resource to, to touch on the, over the big picture of what we've talked about, about the freeness of salvation, of, about what Jesus uh, did for us. It's a real simple read, and I just want to read a couple of the chapter titles. There's only five chapters. Uh, read the fine print, choose the right playbook, understand the game plan, know the facts, and then believe the good news. And so this is uh, something that is, is helpful in terms of what we're going to talk about tonight in keeping it simple. But it's also uh, can be used as a small group study because there are discussion questions at the end of each of the five chapters. And it can also be used as an extended gospel track. So if you're dealing with someone, talking about the Lord with them, maybe they don't know the Lord, uh, but they're open, this would be a good book to to just put in their hands and, 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 and you know, assuming they'll read it. And then uh, the one that I think most of you are familiar with that we had last time we were here, Getting the Gospel Wrong, I wanted to mention that in it, and I was talking to someone at the table about this this morning, there are six chapters that deal with false gospel presentations. Now I know we, we talked about ten things the gospel is not. That's kind of a different outline, but and there's some overlap. But these are broadly speaking ten prominent uh, or excuse me, six prominent presentations and methodologies of sharing the gospel that are in direct violation to what we're going to talk about tonight. And it's things like the purpose gospel, the puzzling gospel, the prosperity gospel, I'm sure you're, you're familiar with that, the pluralistic gospel, the performance gospel, which is chapter 9, which is really a lot of what we've dialogued about during the Q&A and in some of these, uh, several of the points in the 10 points we did Friday and Saturday deal with works-based, commitment-based, performance-based Gospels. And then the Promise-Only Gospel is a new chapter that we added in the most recent edition of this. So that's that one. And then uh, finally, the, my newest book, The Top Ten Reasons Some People Go to Hell, uh, if you haven't taken the chance to look at the chapter titles, I think this is really a, a catchy read for both believers and unbelievers. And in the preface, I deal directly with the reader, and I talk first to the reader who might have picked up the book that is not a believer, that is a skeptic, that's not even sure there's a God, that's wondering what's all this about, and that might be offended by the title, the top ten reasons some people go to hell. Who are you to tell me who goes to hell and who doesn't? Who are you to say there's even a hell? And so I, I deal directly with that, but I also talk to the believer how this, the chapters in this book can really help us, in a manner of speaking, get inside the mind of an unbeliever as to what it might be that is a stumbling block uh, for them to keep them from receiving the free gift of eternal life by faith. So the chapter titles here are The Bomb and the Explosion, Too Smart for Your Own Good, I'm Okay, You're Okay, You Say Tomato, Let's Make a Deal, The Goat, 
and that's an acronym for anybody know? You probably don't because you're a Raiders fan, but GOAT stands for greatest of all time. Uh, and then mending a broken heart, can you hear me now? Don't believe everything you hear and why and busyness. So those are just some of the titles that each one deals with a different outlook on life, a different perspective that people might have that's keeping them from believing the gospel. So check that off the list. Um, and, uh, and so then I wanted to uh, mention the one more time the Spirit of the Antichrist DVD series. I know several of you have picked that up, uh, but that is you know, 18 videos, 14 hours explaining uh, based on 1 John, where it says the Spirit of the Antichrist is already at work among us, based on, uh, therefore, explaining what Satan is doing in this present evil age. All right, let's, uh, let's review a little bit. Uh, and to do that, I want to just give you five points. I don't, don't have any supplemental slides or a lot of detail here because I really want to get to the, to the outline, to the di uh, diagram. But I do want to take a moment to talk about each of these bullet points. I think there are five uh, things that we should keep in mind, uh, big picture principles, when sharing the gospel. Now, if we had more time and an extended uh, study, or maybe if this was a class at you know at, at an institute or something, we might dive into each one of these for several days. But I think you'll get the idea as I talk about each one of them. The first one is correctly. So uh, as we think about not by works, our, our core value in ministry is the clarity, accuracy, and urgency of the gospel message. So correctly is just a synonym for accuracy there. Uh, in this outline, I'm using the term correctly, but when you're sharing the gospel, the number one priority should be to make sure it's right. As we've talked a lot about, there are a lot of false gospels that are permeating the culture. And, and a lot of people preaching false gospels mean well. I want to make sure you, you caught the nuances that I've tried to uh, describe over this weekend, that not everybody who's preaching a false gospel is a raving heretic intentionally doing this for profit or trying to just be some shyster. There are good, God-fearing men and women who love the Lord, love Jesus, they value his word. They just connect the dots wrong. They, they are just uh, preaching a gospel that is not consistent with the pure, free grace uh, of the Lord. And so we, you know, we want to deal appropriately depending on the, the situation with that person. But in either case, it's not acceptable, right? Uh, the fact that God can sometimes... Uh, take our weak and, and often sloppy gospel presentations that have inaccurate statements in them and uh, to his glory use them anyway and through the Spirit of God lead people to faith in Christ. That's wonderful, but it doesn't then excuse us from getting it right. You know, I've often said God can hit a home run with a crooked bat, but it doesn't mean that when we step up to the plate we should grab a crooked bat. Uh, that doesn't make sense. It doesn't follow. So we want to get, get it right and, 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 and be accurate. And so we're going to see an example of that tonight through this one uh, particular method of sharing the gospel, this diagram. Uh, there are many ways to share the gospel. This is by no means the only way. Um, and one of the things we're going to talk about here in a second is just you know, being able to do it instinctively with touching on you know, whatever the need is at that moment. But the core essence of the gospel never changes. As I've said before, you can say it in 10 words or less. Christ died for our sins and rose from the dead. And in getting the gospel wrong, the first two first three chapters, 
I lay it out exegetically and biblically from Scripture, what are the non-negotiable components of the gospel? In other words, if, if, if you think of it in terms of a mathematical equation, if we say the gospel is X, and if you believe X, you'll go to heaven, then if you believe X plus 1, you haven't believed X, because X plus 1 does not equal X, right? If you believe X minus 1, you haven't believed the gospel, because X minus 1 doesn't equal X. And so people add things to the gospel, they take things away from the gospel, but we want to get it accurate. We want to make sure it's correct. And, uh, and we've talked a lot about that over the first uh, couple days of this conference. The second thing that I want to point out is to share the gospel confidently. It always amazes me that uh, we are prone to become sheepish and uh, you know, nervous and almost apologetic in the negative sense of the term when talking to people about the gospel. And it was never intended to be that way. The reason the church exploded after the day of Pentecost uh, in Jerusalem is because people came to realize that their sins had been forgiven, that the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world had died in their place on the cross, and that by simply trusting Him, they could have eternal life. And man, they couldn't wait to tell people that message. But after 2,000 years, you know, we have become uh, conditioned to think that sharing the gospel is like being a salesman. And not everybody's a salesman. Let's just face it, right? I've got some background in sales, and it always came fairly easily for me if I believed in what I was selling. But, you know, anybody that knows human nature knows there are some people that sales is not their thing, right? But the, sharing the gospel evangelism is not like a sales job. Uh, we're not selling anything. We're giving things away and sharing with people the good news about how they can have uh, eternal life. And so I feel like even among conservative Bible-believing churches, we have unnecessarily uh, sort of bifurcated the gospel and the Christian life so that, you know, the gospel is something that you believed when you were, if you were raised in a Christian home, maybe six years old or whenever you believed it. And now you sort of put that on the shelf and now you're living the Christian life. And that's true theologically, as we've talked a lot about. There's definitely a distinction between sanctification and justification theologically. But the gospel is not something that is only for unbelievers. The gospel is something that believers need to talk about and dialogue about. And one of the reasons I believe most people aren't confident about sharing the gospel is because they haven't talked about it in so long. And um, I use the illustration in Getting the Gospel Wrong of uh, an old, another football uh, uh, analogy, Vince Lombardi, the second greatest football coach of all time. Right, Matt? Uh, who used to, I mean, world-class football coach, won a number of championships, won Super Bowls when they started the Super Bowls, uh, widely considered the second greatest football coach of all time. And, uh, I mean, everybody knows I'm referring to Tom Landry, I think, right? Okay. So, anyway, Vince Lombardi, you know, with his world-class players, Hall of Fame, future Hall of Famers, all pro players, would begin every football season at the first practice before a new season the same way. He would hold up a football and say, gentlemen, this is a football. Now, these players knew what a football was. That was basic information. I mean, they didn't need to be reminded – what is a football? Like they just moved here from Planet X and never even seen the game. But he understood that it begins with the fundamentals. 
And I believe the, the church needs to do a better job, the church at large, at you know, holding up the Bible and saying, folks, this is the gospel. Let me explain it to you. Let me talk about it. Hearing people's testimonies, giving people the opportunity to share uh, their story of how they came to faith in Christ. And it should become so commonplace that when the opportunity presents itself, it's not something that we have to muster up the courage to do. It just flows uh, naturally. Um, and then uh, clearly. Now, clearly is not the same thing as correctly. You can have the gospel correct, but you can sometimes share it in a way that's very confusing. And so we need to get the gospel correct first, but then we need to articulate it and share it in a way that is clear, that is unambiguous, uh, that doesn't chase a bunch of rabbits and confuse people. Just get to the heart of the matter. You know, you're a sinner, you need a savior. Only one person can save you, and that is the God-man, Jesus Christ. And he died on the cross for your sins, paying the penalty for sin, rose again from the dead, defeating death, hell, and the grave, and is the only one then with the power and authority to give you life and to forgive your sin. And if you'll place your trust in that man, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, you can be forgiven and have eternal life right now. So it's really, there's many different ways to say that's not some uh, mantra or some formulaic phraseology that you have to use, but the core essence of it is there. Sin, Savior, redemption, all of the theological terms, atonement, in my place, substitute, all of those things are there in the way that I just said it. And we need to become so familiar with the gospel that we ought to be able to, to say it clearly. And then fourth, casually. You know, we call this instinctive uh, evangelism. Um, you know, it's, it's not something that, you know, a lot of people in years past have created these programs called uh, intentional evangelism. And that always rubbed me the wrong way because it almost makes it sound like, you know, you got to be intentional. You got to wake up and, and today I'm going to really be determined and I'm going to plan. And so like, like losing weight or something, you have this intentionality to it. But instinctive, which is, I think, a better term, just means that it just flows naturally. You know, you're on the elevator with someone and they comment. I talked to a guy that was a Jewish rabbi at one of our hotels on, on this trip and he saw my Not By Works Lois, said, oh, are you a pastor? I said, well, yeah, as a matter of fact, I am. And then we struck up a dialogue. And I made sure to mention uh, Jesus and how thankful I am that he died in my place on the cross. I assumed, I don't know if this is true, but I assumed that he was not a Messianic uh, Jew. And so, uh, but it didn't, I didn't have to think through it. It just, it just happened in the normal course of life. And I know that uh, you're familiar with the, the real essence of the Great Commission, in Matthew 28, we often think of the command in the Great Commission as being go, because in English it begins that way, go you into all the world, right? But the, the command in Greek, the original text, is not go. Go is a participle, just like teaching and baptizing. So actually a better translation would be going, or as you're going. That's the way we translate participles in English. And the, the only command, by the way, there is to make disciples. Um, but the, the point is, as you go, wherever you go, when you're at the supermarket, when you're at the ball game, when you're walking the dog, as the opportunity presents itself, you just talk about Jesus. You talk about the Lord, and you share what he's done for you, and you, and you, and you get to the core essence of sin, a Savior, and redemption, that he paid your price and offers the gift of eternal life. And then the last one, which I'm not particularly 
uh, good at is creatively. And uh, we see examples in the book of Acts of uh, the Apostle Paul sharing the gospel uniquely. It was always the same core essence of the message, but the way in which he approached it or introduced it was unique depending on uh, the situation. You know, we could think of Paul and Silas in Acts 16 in the midst of a traumatic moment when the earthquake was happening, and, uh, and they took that opportunity to talk with this man about the Lord. They had no doubt been talking about it and singing about it before that. Uh, we can think of Paul and Mars Hill, right, uh, where he dealt with uh, these pagan uh, Greek uh, philosophers, Stoic philosophers, who were, had statues erected to all kinds of pagan uh, gods. And, and, and Paul says, I see you even have a statue to an unknown god here. He immediately finds common ground. And again, I think it was instinctive. I think he was just, he wasn't prepared, you know, hadn't prepared some script. He just had a heart for the lost, we know, and, and he wanted to talk to them. And so he seized the moment. And so I think we make it a lot harder than it has to be. And again, I know I'm just sort of touching briefly on each of these uh, points, but I want you to have them uh, in your mind as we think about um, how to share the gospel. Um, it, it, uh, first and above all else needs to be accurate. Uh, and we should be confident. And we get confident by talking about it. When's the last time you shared your testimony? You know, think about it. Um, for, for many of you, it may have been very recent. Uh, when's the last time you gathered your family around? And let's, let's talk about how I came to know the Lord. Let's each of us share our story about how we came to know the Lord. Your children, your grandchildren. If someone said, how did your grandma get to be a Christian? Would they be able to explain it? Uh, so that will build confidence, um, you know, the more you... Uh, uh, the more you talk about it. Um, so, and then of course, clearly making sure we use clear terminology. We talked about some of that in the 10 things the gospel is not uh, casually and creatively. All right. So with that, I want to have you pull out your, uh, this diagram and I've kind of gotten it started for you just to make it easy. And you don't have to fill this in as we go along, but I know some of you might want to, that's why we gave it to you. But just keep in mind that you can really do the same thing with a blank piece of paper. You can do the same thing on a napkin at a restaurant or anything that you have. If you're, uh, I did it once on a white marker board. I spoke in a chapel at a Christian school one time, and the best place to find unbelievers is in a Christian high school. <laughs> I mean, it is. A lot of unsaved parents send their kids to Christian high schools because they think it's safer, it's better education, it's a private school, over student-teacher ratio, kids are generally more moral, but they don't know the Lord at all. So I was just speaking uh, with Bible in hand, no technology, and I just drew it out on a white marker board. Uh, so you can do this anywhere. You would, if you had a blank sheet of paper, you'd start with a triangle in the top right corner and a circle in the bottom left. Draw a line between them, and then you can go ahead and put the arrows in uh, as well. So um, again, you, if you ever use this method, which can be used in a group, it can be used one-on-one, -on -one. Uh, many different uh, uh, environments where this could be helpful as one tool among many in communicating the, the clear, accurate, and urgent gospel message. Um, but what I always like, you're, you're going to make it your own, you're going to kind of come up with key terms. In a moment we're going to look at some verses as we go through it, uh, and you may find other verses that you think 
validate the point that we're making, but I think you'll see the general flow here. So we start by pointing out that we're going to let this triangle in the top right represent God, and the circle in the bottom represent the world. And uh, so you'll just write God or world on there. And then you talk to the person, uh, you say, let's talk about God first. You know, what do you know about God? So I'm going to zoom in just because I'm doing this electronically to make it easier for you to see. But you want to point out, this is very important right from the start, uh, you, you want to ask the person, you know, what are some things you know about God? Let them kind of talk. Maybe you have to draw it out of them a little bit more. But um, at some point, you want to make sure they understand that God is three. And so usually, if you just get them started, you know, we often talk about, you know, if you heard the term Trinity or that God is three in one, you know, we say God is the Father. And then almost every time they'll say, oh, yeah, Son, and they'll say Holy Ghost or Holy Spirit, right? So you want to just point that out because it's, it's imperative in trusting in Christ that we know that he's not just a human being like any other human being. He is, in fact, God in the flesh. Now, as, you come, as a person comes to faith in that punctiliar moment of time where they believe the gospel and they're born again, they, of course, aren't going to have, nor should it be expected, that they have a fully developed Christology and they know everything there is about the deity and humanity of Christ and all of that. But at a bare minimum, as I show you from Scripture in getting the gospel wrong, they have to understand that the person whom they are trusting to forgive their sin and give them eternal life is, in fact, the one who defeated death. He's the God-man. He's not an ordinary human being. That's, what's, that's, that's fundamental. I mean, that's what separates Christianity from every other major religion. So you want to make sure that you point, at, point that out because we're going to come back to that in a moment as we walk people through this. But at this point, you're just going to start asking them, so what are some things uh, that, that come to mind when you think of God? How would you describe God? What are some characteristics of God? And in theological terms, we use the term attribute, but you want to keep it simple with a person who may not know the Lord and you're sharing the gospel with them. So we'll do that now. Just uh, from where you're sitting, what are some uh, attributes of God that come to mind? God is holy, holy good. Loving, good. I didn't hear. Patient, okay. Merciful, gracious, faithful, good. Just, and you want to write these down as they're talking. Um, I mean, rarely do you get one that's completely off the wall. I mean, most people know enough about God, uh, even if they don't know the Lord, uh, as their personal savior, they know enough about God, they're not going to say something wacky. But, you know, you be prepared for anything. And uh, obviously if they say something that's completely off the wall, don't write that down. Just listen. And then, uh, but, you know, you're going to write it down. So I think we said most of these. I'll just put some of these up on uh, the screen. I don't know if anybody said creator. If you did, I couldn't hear you. I'm, I'm uh, deaf in one ear and can't hear out of the other. But uh, powerful, wise, sovereign, eternal, Love, someone said loving. And then it's important uh, that you show them that these attributes, that we're not just pulling them out of the air. That God, and you don't have to go into detail, but you just want to send the message that these attributes we're getting from God's Word. So you say something like, well, did you know that God's Word describes God in this very way? And then I like to go to Revelation 15:3. Great and marvelous are thy works, Lord God Almighty, just and true are thy ways, thou king of saints. 
Next verse, for thou only art holy. In other words, he's one of a kind. There's none like you. So you just validate a few of these. And then you begin to ask them, now, if we were to come up with one word that describes God best, one attribute that, that you know, would be sort of the sum total of some of these things that you've, that you've mentioned, uh, would you think perfect is a fair description of God? They'll always say yes. I've never had someone say no, right? Um, and so then you say, I think that's a, that's a good summary. And you can, if you want to, you know, you too, you can ask them, how, what would you think summarizes it? But inevitably, even if they say, typically what they'll do is just give you more attributes that to them kind of are at the top of their mental list. But you might have to then help them understand that really God is perfect and he's the only one who's perfect. So you want to get to that point and then you say, as the perfect creator of the universe, he wrote the rules for life. He's the one, I mean, he's the, the creator and the owner and the one who gives us the, the manual, if you will, the rules for life. And then you say, can you think of any rules for life that God gave us in the Bible? Most of the time, they'll come right out with, oh, sure, the Ten Commandments. And sometimes you have to prompt them a little bit. They may say, well, I can't really think of any rules, you know, because they think you're about ready to, you know, nail them to the wall, which you are, but not in the way they think you are. You're about to nail everybody, right? Um, but uh, so you might have to say, what about, aren't there like ten biggies, you know, ten big rules? Have you ever heard of, oh, yeah, yeah, the Ten Commandments, of course. So then I like to zoom in a little bit on the Ten Commandments. Now, on paper, you're just doing this right, right out there, and they're sitting there with you, or if it's on a chalkboard or something. But uh, here I have the ability to zoom in, make it a little bit easier for you guys to, to see. So I, I talked to them a little about, about the God Commandments, and I mentioned that you know, some of the commandments relate to our connection to God and our interaction with God. Some of them relate to our interaction with each other. And so it's things like, you know, have no other gods, no idols, don't misuse God's name, remember the Sabbath, obey your parents, don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't lie, uh, don't covet, right? And, um, and here's where you're going to get kind of personal. And uh, you're going to ask them. Now, uh, in fact, we'll, I'll, we'll play along here. Um, anybody ever... Uh, let's deal with this one first. Anybody ever disobey their parents? Raise your hand. Okay. Most of you, not all of you, but that's uh, shocking. Um, so, um, uh, yeah, you're, you're looking over at your kids. Did they raise their hand? A little. <laughs> Care to come up and elaborate, Evan? <laughs> right. um, so, yeah, you go, wow, yeah, we, uh, you know, I think we've all been in that boat. I'm right there with you. You know, we disobeyed our parents. So what about uh, stealing? You ever stolen something? A lot of times, you know, because that has such a harsh connotation, people's instinctive reactions say, oh, well, no, 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 I'm not a thief. So you might have to help them along and just say, uh, you know, you ever been taking a test? You remember when you were, if it's an older person, remember when you were in school and you're sitting beside someone taking a test and, Oh, you can't think of the answer, and your eyes just kind of wander over to the paper next to you, and you write that down. Remember maybe taking that you know, bubble gum from school, or I mean, we can think of a lot of examples. And, 
it doesn't take long, especially if you're owning it too, for them to say, yeah, well, I guess now that you mentioned it, I probably have stolen at least once in my life. This one's a little easier. You say, how many of you have ever lied, right? And, uh, you know, we've created, a, you know, we've really downplayed sin, obviously, in our culture today. The sin, people don't even like to use that word. So we've sort of created categories of lies, and we don't even like to use the word lying. Um, but it's pretty easy to, to get people to admit, well, yeah, I've lied, right? Um, you know, you're, you're on, the, on the phone, um, and, or the phone rings, you answer it, and it's, uh, you know, for or someone else answers it, and they say, oh, it's your boss or something, and you're over there going, Something like that, you know. You're you're lying, right? Uh, what about coveting? You know, your your neighbor gets a new car. You ever find yourself, man? How come he gets that new car? You know, I work so hard. I pay my bills. I got six kids. I bet he went into debt. I bet he's got a nine hundred dollar payment for that new car. Yeah, I could have a new car too if I wanted to pay nine hundred dollars a month, right? You ever find yourself with those attitudes? And then usually right about now, I like to stop and say, you know, I don't know about you, but man, I'm, I'm 0 for 4 right now. I mean, I, I feel like it's the start of another Raiders season or something. I'm, it's like, wow, I need a win here. Come on. I need a win. And so, so then this is where you begin to really hook them in because then you say, and by the way, no show of hands on these next ones, please. Then you say, oh, let's talk about the biggies, right? I mean, they're all big. They're the Ten Commandments, but what about murder? Have you murdered? Well, Jesus said if you've hated, you've murdered, right? Uh, what about adultery? Jesus said if you've lusted, you know, you've committed adultery. So we're over six, right? What about having no other gods? Ever put anything between you and the Lord? You ever prioritize your relationship, your spiritual life above, you know, below something else, put something between you and God? You ever, you know, hit your thumb with a hammer and something you wish didn't come out comes out? The point is, we are in trouble. We've all broken some, if not all, of these commandments. Right? And in fact, the Bible, God's blueprint tells us that even if we were to stumble on the smallest point of the law, we've really broken it all. So the Bible has a word for this, and that word for breaking God's law is called sin. Sin. And the reality is, you're not alone. We're all sinners. The Bible says all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. There's not a just man upon the earth that doeth good and sinneth not. We're all sinners. So the problem is, uh, as you know, everybody in the world is a sinner. So the Bible says all have sinned, and I always like to really circle that and make sure they know, look, we're all sinners, and all includes you. So... Uh, it's easier for people to recognize their predicament if they understand we're not picking on them. We're all 
born dead in our trespasses and sins, Ephesians 2.1. And so then the problem with that is that that sin separates us from this perfect, holy God that we talked about. And not only does it separate us from him, but it comes with a steep penalty, which is death and eternity in a literal place of torment called hell. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. Jesus tells us when he comes back at the second coming, he's going to say to those who do not know him, depart from me into the everlasting fire, ye cursed, prepared for the devil and his angels. So that's a pretty bleak scenario. You've got a perfect holy God, gave us the rules for life, we obliterated them, and consequently we've become separated from our Creator and are hell-bound. So at this point, it's looking pretty bleak. But you might be thinking, well, but you know, it's not like I only sin, or it's not like everything I do is a sin. Everything I do breaks one of God's rules from life. You know, we on balance, we've got we've to consider the other side of the ledger. So, okay, fair point. Let's talk about that. Let's uh, make a list of some of the good things that counterbalance uh, your sin. And so then you say, what are some good things that you have done? And we'll zoom in on it and just so you can see it and just let them say, oh, well, you know, I... I'm not perfect, but I've never done anything that bad, or I, I'm a pretty kind person, or I'm generous, I'm helpful. You know, I, I go to church, you'll hear that a lot. If it's a young person, well, I do my chores, and, you know, again, I, I give money to the needy or to some charity organization. I volunteer. I you know, shoveled my neighbor's walk. You probably don't do a lot of shoveling walks in Fresno, do you? Uh, I raked my neighbor's leaves. Um, or watered my neighbor's grass. How about that one? Uh, I, I've been baptized. You'll hear that one. And so you let them kind of begin to make the case that, you know, I'm not perfect, but I'm not that bad. Yeah, I've broken some commandments. Yeah, I've sinned, but uh, I've got a lot to commend me. And then you explain to them that the problem is that it's by grace that you are saved through faith, not of yourselves, it's the gift of God. We could have books after books after books loaded with all of your good deeds, and it would never be enough to counteract our sinfulness uh, before a holy God. Uh, Titus 3.5 is not by works of righteousness which we've done, but according to his mercy he saved us. And the, 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 the reality is the Bible tells us that we are all as an unclean thing, and all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. In other words, all of our good deeds can never be enough to pay the penalty for sin. That compared to a holy, perfect God, who is righteous and just and powerful and eternal and loving, all of those things, our good deeds are like, you know, and I'm not, now you theologians in the group here understand perhaps what Isaiah meant in Hebrew by that filthy rag, um, but for the purposes of 
you know, talking about this passage with unbelievers, I wouldn't go into a lot of detail. I would just use an analogy. And so I say, basically, you know, compared to a perfect holy God, our righteous acts are like a, that old dirty shop rag that's been in your garage for probably years, you know. It's that one that when you need to check the oil, you know, you, you, you wipe the, the dipstick off with it. It's that one that you blow your nose in, you know, like every God-fearing American guy out there mowing the lawn. It's the one that, you know, has been stepped on, driven over, wiped up oil spills. Um, when you think about the standard, any of our righteous deeds don't even come close to measuring up to a perfect, holy God. So, where does that leave us? God is perfect. He gave us the rules for life. We blew it. We're not perfect. That separated us from God. Our good works can never bridge that gap. Is God just going to send us all to hell? No. That's the good news. I'm here to tell you good news. And that good news is that God commended his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Uh, by the way, you know, I, I am using scriptures. I have uh, some of these that I have some scriptures on the back, and I'll sometimes I'll, if I'm using this, I'll, I'll turn it over and show them at various points the verses, or of course you can show them in scripture. But don't forget, sometimes depending on the person's attitude or worldview, if they're a real skeptic who doesn't like the Bible, uh, you know, don't let that throw you. Uh, you know, you can still say, this is the reason you need to memorize scripture, you know, you know what's the what's the solution? What's the predicament? Man, this is dire straits here. What what happens? You can say, you know, well, God demonstrated his love toward us in that even though we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And it's the word of God that is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. Paul said, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. It doesn't have to be necessarily leather-bound, written on a razor-thin piece of paper with the Schofield notes out on the side, right? It can, it's the Word of God, right? And so, uh, obviously, it's, in most cases, you'll be showing them in Scripture or showing them a written uh, copy of it or something, but if they push back, still use the Word of God. Let the Spirit of God use the Word of God to pierce hearts and, and convict. So, God came to the rescue. I said, remember, and this is where we, we point out, remember how we talked about how God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? Well, the Son, the second person of the Trinity, God the Son, left heaven, came to earth, lived a perfect, holy, sinless life, and yet died. He never broke any of those rules. Yet he came to earth to die. And he came to earth to die for you and, and all of mankind to pay our penalty for sin. Hebrews tells us we see Jesus that by the grace of God should taste death for every man. Or 1 Timothy, there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. That's what we need. We need a mediator. We need someone to bridge the gap, right? Uh, because we can't bridge that gap ourselves. So he himself, Jesus, God the Son, gave himself as a ransom for all. Now, uh, when he came to the earth and died, did he stay dead? Most people immediately say, oh, no, no. So what do we celebrate every springtime? You know, people celebrate it with Easter bunnies. and Oh, yeah, Easter, right? Well, that's the resurrection. He did not stay dead. He rose from the dead. 
The Bible says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. He was delivered up, that is, died on the cross for our offenses and was raised again for our justification. We need to be able to meet the standard that God has for us. We need to be declared perfectly righteous if we're going to bridge that gap and overcome this predicament that we find ourselves in. So Jesus Christ, by his resurrection, purchased eternal life for us. He purchased it. He defeated death. He paid the penalty. The Bible tells us this is the record that God had given to us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He that hath the Son hath life. You want to avoid death? You want to avoid eternity separated from God? You need life. Who has life? The Son. He that does not have, have the Son of God hath not life. For as the Father raiseth up the dead and quickeneth them, even so the Son quickeneth whom he will. For as the Father hath life in himself, so hath he given to the Son to have life in himself. So Jesus Christ purchased eternal life when he rose from the dead, and he can give it to whoever he will. And he is offering it as a gift to you and to anyone else that will receive it. That's what happens when you find yourself in an impossible situation. You can't be good enough to save yourself. You can't undo all the bad things that you have did that have already dug the hole too deep. So you need a rescuer. You need a savior. You need someone to gift you the, the solution to the problem. And the Bible says God so loved the world, Jesus said, that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Again, it's for by grace are you saved through faith. It's a gift. That's what grace is. Free gift. We've talked a lot about that. It's about grace. It's about mercy. Uh, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us. So Jesus Christ, when he died on the cross, bridged the gap, making it possible for sinful mankind to once again be able to be in a right relationship with the perfect creator of the universe, God. But a gift, like all gifts, has to be received, right? Um, and the Bible tells us we receive the gift of forgiveness and eternal life by faith. As many as received him to them, he gave, the, uh, gave he the power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. That's how we do it. So the, the, the available bridge is there. We just have to take possession of the gift by faith. So if you go back to John 3.16, when you believe in Christ, two things happen. When you place your faith in Christ, he that whosoever believeth, number one, should not perish. Should not perish. That's mercy. Mercy is the withholding of punishment. That's what mercy is. Grace is the giving of an undeserved gift. Grace is undeserved favor, an undeserved gift. Mercy is a withholding of judgment. Justice, the third part of that triad, is getting what you deserve. That's justice. So again, justice says we deserve death and hell. Grace and mercy say if you'll simply believe in me, you don't have to face those two predicaments. I, I, I probably shared this last time we were here, uh, but that's been three years ago, and 
uh, uh, it's always a helpful analogy to me to think about justice, grace, and mercy as they relate to one another. So if, uh, if you were to get pulled over for speeding, and, and let's say you're really exceeding the speed limit, uh, so the officer pulls you over, and as you're waiting for him or her to walk up to your window, you're doing what every red-blooded Christian American is doing. You're praying. <laughs> and what are you praying for? You're praying, Lord, let him give me a warning. Right? Now, if he were to walk up to you and hand you a citation for speeding, that would be justice. You broke the law, you pay the piper. Right? That's justice. If he were to give you, say those wonderful words, I'm just going to give you a warning, that's mercy. That's the withholding of the penalty. You deserved a ticket. I'm not going to give you that ticket, right? That's mercy. But if he were to take the unusual next step of pulling out his wallet and saying one more thing, here's $100, <laughs> that would be grace, See, grace is giving a gift you don't deserve. If, uh, if you're disciplining your child who misbehaved and you sit them down and you say, uh, son, daughter, I'm going to have to, did you do this? Yes, daddy, I did. I'm going to have to give you a spanking. You know you deserve a spanking. Yes, daddy. Okay, I'm not going to give you a spanking. That's mercy. If they got a spanking, that would be justice. Justice is served. I'm not going to give you a spanking. That's mercy. But if I said, go grab your coat, we're going to go to Baskin-Robbins and get an ice cream cone, that's grace. And people confuse grace and mercy all the time. But they're different. And they both coalesce at the cross. Because whoever believeth, number one, should not perish. That means the penalty uh, goes away. No more death. Hell, gone. We don't have to face that punishment. But a second thing happens, and that is we have the gift, present tense, of eternal life, everlasting life, right? So remember this eternal life that uh, Christ purchased with his own blood? He then gives it to you as a gift because you believed in him, right? So we need to understand you know, that at, if you go back to John 3.16, justice, grace, and mercy are all pictured in that one verse. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That's justice. Somebody had to die. The penalty had to be paid. Blood, blood had to be shed. Right? Without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness. So nobody can accuse God of being fickle or unfair or unfaithful or a liar. God said, in the day that thou eatest thereof, you shall surely die. He didn't then wink and nod at sin and say, oh, I was just kidding. Come right on in. You you meant well, right? No, death. That's the consequence for sin. And because God is just, that consequence had to be paid. And it's paid when Jesus Christ, God's Son and our Savior, went to the cross for me and for you. That's justice. But we also see in John 3.16, mercy. No longer do you have to pay the penalty. And the penalty is much steeper than a traffic ticket or a spanking. It's eternity in a literal place of torment called hell. You don't have to face it if you believe in Jesus. And not only that, but then he gives you the free gift of eternal life. And, uh, and so, you know, we go back to Acts chapter 16. I think I put that verse on your uh, sheet. What 
people, the, the, the question burning on people's hearts, even if they don't realize it. Uh, you know, Proverbs says, to the hungry soul, every bitter thing is sweet. People are looking for something to fill that void. What must I do to be saved? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. And thy house, anyone who believes on the Lord Jesus Christ can be saved. Right? So the answer to man's predicament is not found in uh, our filthy, dirty rags. It's not found in our own efforts. Uh, it's found in believing in Jesus Christ, faith alone in Christ alone bridges the gap, and allows us to receive the free gift of eternal life. The Bible says uh, that these things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. So a lot of times it's helpful to ask a person, we didn't do this at the front end, but how sure, depending on who you're talking to, how sure are you that you're going to go to heaven when you die? Most unbelievers will, will say something between 50, 60, 70, 80, 90 percent, right? Because um, they don't understand you can be sure. You can know right now. You don't have to wait till you die, you know. It's not some mystery. Boy, I hope so, you know. Uh, you can know right now. Uh, I was talking to someone at a funeral one time who uh, used to, when I was first started in ministry at age, my first full-time church at age 24 or 25, uh, or 24, I was in a small town, and, and uh, the uh, funeral home director often asked the pastor of that church that I took to come do funerals for people who weren't churched. So I ended up doing a ton of funerals early on, which was great. It kind of helped me learn to do funerals. Uh, but uh, I remember one of them doing for a guy, didn't know him from Adam, didn't have church or anything, but, uh, and always gave the gospel, of course, at every funeral. But a guy came up to me. Uh, I was standing by the casket. This is before the service, and you know, it was during the viewing. And he says, oh, I knew old Joe or whatever his name was. And he said, you know, uh, preacher, you, you may not know this about him, but, man, he, you know, I knew him well, grew up with him, went to school with him here. And I, you know, he started out, and I forget the churches, but he listed five or six. He started out Baptist, and he ended up, when he went to college, he went to the Methodist church, and he got married and became Episcopal, and then he did this, and he converted to Catholicism, and, and, and he said, so he looked at me, and he said, so, preacher, what, you think he's, think he's got a pretty good chance of getting in? And I said, I don't know, but I know the only thing Jesus said is no one comes to the Father except through me, and if there's never been a time in his life when he trusted in Christ, then we don't know, but if there has, he doesn't have to wait to find out. He already knew. He already knew, and you can know too. See, you don't have to wait till you die to answer that question. The gift of eternal life is a gift of grace that is a present possession. You get eternal life the moment you believe, not when you die. So you can know that you have eternal life. In fact, Jesus put it this way, one of the simplest, clearest statements when you understand who Jesus is in the Bible. He said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that believeth on me hath everlasting life. You don't get the potential for everlasting life or the possibility or the prospect. You get the possession right then of eternal life. So it's all about trusting in Christ. He's the only answer. He's the only one. He's the only one with the authority to give you the gift of forgiveness and eternal life. 
He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through, except by me. So then here's the, here's the moment where we talked about in one of the sessions how people often fumble the ball, right? I'll resist the urge to bring up the Raiders again. But, but they get to this point having explained the only solution to our sin problem. And then it's like, so if you'll just repeat after me, or so if you'll just sign this card, so if you'll just give him your all, so if you'll just, you know, all these mistakes. And so, I mean, there are different ways to invite people, um, but you can say something like, would you like to know for sure that you can have eternal life? Are you prepared to trust in Christ right now? Or one of the ones that I like is, can you think of any reason why you should not trust Jesus Christ right now? Forgive your sin and give you the gift uh, of eternal life. And then, uh, and then if they say no, then you say, well, great. Would you like to place your faith in him right now? And, and you might lead them in some type of guidance on how they can do that. It's not, it's not simple. There's not any formula that you have to say or any words that you have to say. It's just a matter of recognizing him as the only one who can save you and placing your faith in him. People trust in many things. Whatever you were trusting in before, are you ready to trust in Jesus Christ and him alone? Remember we talked about exclusivity as the only one who can save you. So, uh, and then you go back, if you ask them that question, you ask, well, uh, so how sure are you now that you're going to heaven based on what Jesus said? Oh, I'm sure. I'm 100% sure. And we all can be 100% sure. And I would guess in a group this size, uh, there are probably people here even, even having grown up in church or been sitting in a great Bible teaching church like this one who at times aren't sure. And I want you to understand it is never healthy to doubt your salvation. I think you've got a brochure back there about doubt. I believe it's a sin to doubt your salvation. It's like looking at Jesus and saying, I know you promised you gave me eternal life, but I don't think you meant it. <laughs> I don't believe you. <laughs> but you can count on Jesus. He went to the cross for you. So he's not going to mislead you. He, he was willing to pay the ultimate sacrifice, even death on the cross. So when he says, I give you eternal life, he meant it. And our eternal security is rooted in the empirical, objective promise of Christ who said, I give you eternal life and you shall never perish. And uh, so if you're here uh, tonight and you're not sure, you need to be sure. And you have no reason to doubt. The only reason we doubt is because Satan has brought up all these false gospel presentations, many of which we've touched on this weekend, that cause people to look to themselves, you know, Look, you know, did I really break all these laws? Don't I really have enough good works to counteract that? They're looking at themselves, and they know that they're not perfect. And they know that the standard is perfection. And so, obviously, they doubt. But when you place your faith in Jesus Christ, all those doubts go away. Because now it's no longer that the issue is settled. You've, you've received forgiveness you, you've received mercy, you've received grace, and you will spend eternity in heaven. Okay, well, that's, uh, that's the diagram, and I'd love to just end with some questions. Anybody uh, have any comments, questions about anything we've talked about, anything that maybe you were hoping we would touch on that uh, we haven't, or questions that come to your mind about salvation or the gospel or anything?
Anybody with a question? Wow, we, we answered them all? Yes, ma'am. Yeah, so obviously, you know, each situation is going to be different. And if you're dealing with a, a self-professed atheist who doesn't acknowledge God, who, doesn't, who won't even begin with the premise that there's a God and there's man, well, then you're going to have to go a different route. And there are different apologetic techniques for that. Uh, I believe, and I, I think the Bible bears this out, that ultimately you cannot argue someone into the faith uh, you can't present enough evidences or enough rational arguments. So I, I think, um, you know, so for example, uh, you know, books like Josh McDowell's, you know, 50 Reasons the Resurrection is True, and all that, those are evidential approaches to apologetics. And they have their place. They can be helpful in setting the stage. Or rational arguments. And like when I taught apologetics, we would go through all of these. They have their place. But ultimately, none of those are going to win the day. It's going to all be about their worldview, their presupposition. So if they set, someone says to me, I don't believe there's a God, then I say, why not? What, you know, what do you believe? I mean, uh, how do you know there's no God? Just keep circling them back with questions to where they finally have to admit they do have a basis for belief. They're, 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 everybody has a basis for belief, right? They may not realize it, but they do. If you believe something, you're basing that on something. Um, I have a, uh, a chart in our uh, chart book on why do you believe what you believe, and I have five categories of reasons people believe what they believe, but none of them are the ultimate arbiter of truth. And so it all comes down to what is your presupposition. You have yours, I have mine. So you're entitled to yours, um, but don't claim that yours is better than mine because it's just your presupposition. Now let me tell you about mine. I believe there is a God. I believe the creation declares it. I think uh, there are plenty of evidences to show that there's a God, and the most logical conclusion that I can come to is that there's a God. And if there's a God, he's revealed himself to man. How? In his word. And if this is his word, then I'm going to live by what he says. And this is not ambiguous. It's very clear that the only hope is to receive from him the gift of eternal life. So... Uh, obviously, you know, the Spirit of God is the one who ultimately is going to lead to conversion, right, uh, as they believe. You can't force them to believe. Um, don't be discouraged in talking to people, even your own family, if they push back and push back and push back. History is filled with examples of people who were the hardest skeptics for most of their life, but at some point, Spirit of God broke through, and they trusted in Christ, so don't give up. Um, but don't feel like it's something uh, that, that you can do wrong or that you, if you just would say it better. You know, we are just the agents, and this is just one tool among hundreds 
that people can use. Uh, and each one has to be catered to the situation. This diagram is not going to be fit every situation. But one of the things that is most important, no matter how you're sharing the gospel, is to use scripture. Because Paul said that I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it, the gospel, is the power of God to salvation. So you can come up with all these evidences and arguments and rationalities and so forth, and I've seen this happen, and I've even been guilty of it in trying to convince someone there's a God. And I realized I just had a two-hour conversation, and I never once quoted scripture. <laughs> and as good and eloquent and wonderful as my words are, uh, right, they're not they're not the same level and power as God's word. Right? And so the illustration I've used before uh, is when someone you know, argues with you over, is this the word of God or not, or I don't believe in God, or I don't believe the Bible, don't argue with them over how sharp the sword is, just stick them with it, right? Because it's the word of God that's quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. So make sure, you know, as you're talking to people that you uh, you can quote the Lord. Nobody, unless they're a complete idiot, uh, pardon my bluntness, denies that Jesus existed. I mean, he is the most historically attested human being on planet Earth, right? So you can quote Jesus. Did you know Jesus one time said that, that uh, I'm the way, the truth, and the life? No one comes to the Father but by me. That's the word of God. Uh, did you know Jesus said, unless a man's born again, you cannot see the kingdom of heaven. That's the word of God. So make sure, you know, as you're talking and listening and don't let it become an argument or something where you feel like you have to win because ultimately it's about their soul. That's my problem sometimes. You know, I'm a theologian at heart and I don't, I don't, I like to convince people, right? And so, but I need to remember that this is a soul that's at stake and, and the spirit of God, we do the planting, he he ultimately brings the increase, and so, uh, but don't don't forget to keep the word of God in there too. So, yes. I think that's possible, yeah. So the question is, um, you know, is it possible that a person who's an atheist might actually be closer to believing the gospel than an agnostic is really... Yeah, sure. Yeah, well, that, I mean, sadly, it, it's, it's certainly... True that even believers can come to that point, and Paul says in Second Timothy two twelve that even if we are faithless, he remains faithful because he cannot deny himself. So once a child of God, always a child of God. You don't your spiritual DNA changes the moment you believe the gospel, and nothing can can change that. And for many reasons, people uh, sadly believers have turned their back on on the Lord. Um, as far as unbelievers. Um, I mean, I think that's what I'm attempting to address in uh, the top 10 reasons some people go to hell is, is from my experience, and this is just by no means a comprehensive list, 
But these are the 10 reasons that I think people who don't know the Lord have never believed the gospel. And it's different for different people. I think part of it is an intellectual elitism. Uh, part of it is, uh, you know, we, we, we are at, uh, humanly speaking, a disadvantage because Satan has infiltrated all parts of you know, higher ed and at media and everywhere we go, people are being bombarded with lies. Satan's a liar from the beginning. And uh, so especially with young people who sat in colleges for four years where they've been told there is no God, um, it, it, it becomes harder to gain a hearing with them and, and really begin to have them think about it. So that's why I say evidential apologetics and uh, rational argumentation can really be helpful in the right context for the right person. Um, but it's not going to save them. It's going to just get them to maybe go, oh, well, let me, okay, let me give it a second look, right? And then once they're in the Word and looking at gospel passages and understanding more about it, then they can become convicted of sin, righteousness, and judgment. But uh, yeah, I think your original question is, you know, any person on earth is just one step of faith away from being born again. And we need to remember that. You know, I uh, had, years ago, I had, uh, was at a conference with a Calvinist, and uh, I mean, he, we were attending the conference, the event, and uh, so we were there all week, and every day we would have lunch at the same restaurant, and uh, the same server waited on us. And it was a young lady, and uh, we, she, you know, we struck up a conversation. Why are you here? Oh, well, I'm here for this conference. We're talking about the Lord, and so we had, we dialogued with her every day. And she was definitely not a believer, and uh, we had some interesting discussions. Well, uh, Friday I left her a track every time with the tip. And Friday came, it was our last day there. We left, she never really progressed beyond just general discussion, never seemed to, to want to believe in Christ. And as we're walking out to the uh, car, my Calvinist friend looked at me and said, well, she obviously wasn't elect. And you know, so I punched him right in the nose. <laughs> uh, because he doesn't know that, right? And you know, we need to remember, we may not, you know, be so blunt about it like some Calvinists are, but sometimes we we think of people as lost causes, and you know, God's in the miracle working business, and people can come to faith, and we just need to continue to preach the gospel faithfully and pray for them. Yeah. Well, the first verse says, uh, "Will not to judge," and uh, that verse for me uh, has a meaning of uh, we're guilty of judging and not sharing. Well, that's certainly you know to 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 make a judgment uh, that we you know we shouldn't share Christ because I don't think they're going to believe it certainly would be wrong. I agree with you there. Uh, I think there's a little more going on in that passage in uh, Matthew seven, but uh, I think you're you're spot on that we often make the mistake without really stopping to think about it in hastily concluding they're a lost cause. I, I find that in terms of dialogue. I have the most fun, and I mean that just that it's a really an energizing dialogue with people that outwardly look like they're the furthest away, right? Um, I mean, they might not look the part at all, 
but man, those are people that are hurting, and they're clearly searching for something, and so they might be more open rather than the, you know, the, the typical person who's got it all together but just has no need for God, right? Yeah, back on the back row. You don't, you never know. You never know. And again, um, we have to remember that it's about um, caring for people's souls and being obedient to the call to evangelism and doing our job while we're here. That's why the church is here till the Lord comes. And just uh, instinctively, you know, like we, like we talked about right out, out of the shoot, just being willing to have a conversation. You know, you don't even have to have it all mapped out. You know, sometimes I'll begin this presentation with a uh, just a rhetorical sort of open-ended question. Do you ever think about spiritual things? You know, these days that's a that's a can be a very helpful question because everybody in this postmodern age is thinking about otherworldliness, and you know that's different than it used to be. You know, in the past, people, you know, if you couldn't see it, feel it, touch it, hear it, smell it, they didn't have any use for it. But now people are more open to this. Kind of stuff. They just are looking at Eastern mysticism and you know, all this weird stuff. So you can just have a conversation. Just you ever think about spiritual things, or you know, uh, you know, if people again, if if they're not, if they don't believe there's a God, or they don't believe that we that there's an afterlife. So uh, you know, at that point, you, you know, you just have to. It, it, it becomes a little more nuanced in how you begin to have the conversation and steer the conversation. And, um, you know, for me, I actually enjoy that because it, it you know, it gets people thinking. And you just want to keep tightening the circle to where they really don't have anywhere to run. And they suddenly realize, yeah, you know what? I have a worldview and I can't really say for sure how I came to these conclusions, but they're, they're conclusions and maybe I should give other worldviews some thought. And, and it sort of cracks the door. Um, but that's a lot, I mean, unless the Spirit of God just breaks through, and, and these kinds of things do happen, but generally speaking, that's a, that's a longer process because they're going from there is no God, there is no heaven, there is no hell, we're all just useless breathers, and when we stop breathing, we cease to exist. And that's a pretty different worldview, and we've got to give them time to process out of that um, but, you know, there is an urgency to the gospel, and people don't always have time. So, you know, you can always, even if you're in an ongoing discussion, you can always lead people with, well, look, I want you to know I love you, brother. I love you, sister, and God loves you, too. And 
Jesus died to pay your penalty for sin, and I care about you. And I want you to know that he's ready if you'll simply trust in him. He'll be your savior. And that way they, they are left with an action item, even if they may not be ready to do it. Anybody else? Yes, sir. Yeah. Yeah, so let me read. That's very good. I think that's very helpful. Let me repeat that for people that might be watching the video. Um, you're saying when someone says you know, they don't believe in God or don't believe in the Bible, a good question to ask is to ask them, well, what's your understanding of the Bible? What is it that you think the Bible says? man has to do to be saved. And you're right, most people, frankly, as we've seen, many Christians are going to say, oh, well, you gotta work harder, be better, do good, persevere to the end, all these things. And then when you begin to show them very plainly uh, that that's not at all what God's plan is, then it, it instinctively will make them question, well, wow, what else have I got wrong? You know? So yeah, that's a good, another good point. All right. Well, thank you guys so much. This has just been a wonderful weekend, and I wish we could stay uh, you know, forever. I really do, and I hope we'll get to come back and to talk uh, some more. And, but do stay in touch with us. Feel free to reach out uh, anytime by email. and uh, Glad to answer questions or just hear how you're doing, or you can stay in touch with our, uh, with our ministry. I want to thank you know, the church again for bringing us here and um, and I don't know if you guys knew, but when we got to our hotel room, there was a great big goodie box there with all kinds of uh, goodies. I could tell clearly they had Wendy in mind and then me in mind because they had a lot of healthy, good stuff for Wendy, and they had all this junk food for me. You know, they probably, whoever put it together, said, let's get them some healthy stuff, and then Gary probably said, well, you better get some junk for Hickson because that's all he ever eats. But in any event, I, I'm thankful for that junk. It was, uh, it was great. Um, but yeah, we love you guys and thanks so much. Why don't I close us in prayer and then we'll stick around as long as we need to. Lord, thank you again for this time together. Thank you for this sweet fellowship and just pray that you continue to uh, lead and protect uh, Grace Bible Church as they proclaim the gospel in this uh, community and abroad. Uh, thank you for our time together. I pray that the truth of the gospel, the clarity of it, uh, would really resonate and that we would become so comfortable with it, that we would talk about it without a moment's hesitation. So Lord, we love you. And most of all, we do pray if there's one that was either watching the live stream or even possibly here tonight that does not know you, we pray that in simple childlike faith, today would be the day of salvation as they place their faith in your Son and our Savior, the only one who can save us. And it's in his precious name that we pray.